0: I wanna welcome you to Central this morning where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus. We're seeking that through studying the book of Jonah this month, that reluctant prophet who God rescued with a lifeboat of a great fish. He caught him by his grace and the Lord gave him a second chance. You know, our God is a God of second chances. Are you running from him this morning? Have you been caught by his grace? Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes to his word that we might see Jesus from Jonah chapter 3. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your word. Help us to find you faithful. Help us to see you, our rescuing God, and help us to fall on our knees before Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. Jonah 3, beginning in verse 1. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn, everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Who's the person in your life that you would have least expected them to come to Jesus? The person who you never thought you would see them turn their lives over to him and, and submit to Jesus. Who is it? Maybe it's you. <laughs> Maybe you're the least expected person who would come to Christ. I had a fraternity brother in college, a real salt of the earth kind of guy, but he was a partier. I mean, he was a real partier. We lived in the house at the same time and, and he was captain party. Everything that you can imagine, every way that you can imagine, he led at the beginning of the party all the time. Now he was also a smart guy and he thought he was even smarter than he really was. He didn't need help from anybody. Nobody could tell him what to do. Nobody could help him or how. nobody could tell him how to do something. He was just fine all on his own. Do you know this guy? Ever met him before? He had zero interest in Jesus. I mean, zip. And he, like so many others, thought, I'm getting along just fine by myself. And I don't want to give control over my life to somebody, especially if I don't even think they're real. I don't believe God's real. Why would I want to submit to him? He ridiculed those of us in the fraternity who were involved in campus ministries. Thankfully, there were lots of us there together. But this guy had no use for Jesus, no use for any of Jesus' people. He was the least expected of my friends who would come to Christ, I thought. Fast forward to just a few years ago. I got a Facebook friendship request from that guy. And that guy is now a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on fire for Jesus. he's, He's spending his life working with other students that they would embrace the gospel, they would know the gospel and not walk the path that he himself walked on. And to tell you the truth, I could name 20 other guys who are in the same boat. Our God is in the beautiful habit of completely transforming the lives of that guy of that gal who no one would have ever dreamed that they would live for anybody other than themselves. Are you that guy this morning? In Jonah's world, the Ninevites were that guy. Not just with wild living, but they were extremely violent people. They were brutal, evil people. I mentioned a few weeks ago how they, the various ways they practiced child sacrifice. They, they, they conquered people, they brutalized the people, they enslaved people that they conquered their cities and Nineveh was the capital city of these people, the Assyrians, and they were at the top of the worst offenders list in idolatry, in evil, in violence, and even more so, in particular, they hated Israel. They absolutely hated and brutalized God's people, so Jonah, God's prophet, wanted them to receive judgment. Now, on the one hand, there's something to affirm there. I mean, evil and sin and violence and, and idolatry, all those things deserve judgment. And one day, the Lord is going to judge the earth and remove all of those things from it. But, but when? It's on the last day. But Jonah wanted Nineveh to be judged now. He wanted this pagan nation to get what's coming to them now and he wanted Israel, God's covenant people, to receive mercy and grace and tenderness now. His posture was God bless us and nobody else. Certainly not those Gentiles over there in Assyria. But Nineveh was that guy. Nineveh was the people who received that unexpected mercy of God and in Jonah's mind, he was furious because their places were swapped. In his mind, Nineveh deserved judgment and yet they were receiving mercy while Israel, God's people, were being sent in judgment into exile. It all seems so backwards in his mind and especially as we're going to see in chapter 4 next week, Jonah didn't care about those people. He cared nothing for those people, but the Lord cares about people who were lost. The Lord cared about the Ninevites. The Lord cares about the lost here, too. The question for us is, do we? Do we care about those who were lost? It was just another line of extravagant miracles in this story. Jonah being thrown in the sea and the sea calming and and being swallowed by his great fish, being spit out upon the dry ground, finding the Lord in the whale. And now, and another extravagant miracle, he brought this nation of enemies to repentance. And only God has that power. Only the Spirit of God is able to bring sinners to repentance then or now. So what does that repentance look like in the book of Jonah? And what does it look like in my life and yours well first let's think about what the message was what was the message that God sent Jonah to go into Nineveh to teach well it was an important city in the world and it was a three-day journey an exceedingly great city Jonah tells us that means it was large it was heavily populated it was an important city in the world but more importantly this city mattered to God The city of the violent idolaters, evil people, mattered to the Lord. And he had compassion on those violent lost souls. So we sent Jonah with a fairly simple message. Verse 4, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, that's quite a sermon. Um, I'm glad he's not giving me that sermon to preach every week here at Central. I'm sure that Jonah was worried about, is he going to live? Can you imagine going into the capital city of your worst enemies and being told to preach 40 more days and you guys are all getting wiped out? What do you think he expected? Probably expected to be murdered, expected to be silent. And yet the response to Jonah's preaching was a response that no other prophet in the history of Israel ever received. Nobody else, not even in Israel responded like the Ninevites did it was a sermon of gracious warning how is that well think with me is it not gracious to warn someone of problems coming in their life of destruction coming down the path how gracious and loving would it be if we were to see a child running into the street and us to say nothing It would be ungracious, it would be unloving. Would we not want to warn them of of the destruction of the problem in the street? It's It's the same with the Lord. It was the Lord's grace that warned these Ninevites of the consequences of their disobedience, the consequences of their sin, of the impending destruction that would come about by their love of their sin. It's kindness of the Lord to call us back, to call us out of danger. It's kindness of the Lord to tell us that judgment is coming. It's kindness of the Lord to remind us that we are all liable to judgment. And when we look at that last day, we have one of two pleas. Our only plea is either Jesus bore my judgment in my place. On the cross, he fulfilled, he, he carried, uh, God carried out on him all the judgment that I deserve. Or, I'm responsible to bear that weight myself. It's the only two postures before the great judgment seat Of the Lord, and our God wants us to know that there is a remedy to our judgment. There is kindness in that warning. Are you listening today? Are you listening to what the Lord is saying? It's interesting this message itself 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown has a a basic meaning of, of like overturned. It's used in Jeremiah 13 and 1 Kings 21 and 22 and several other places, and it means something like overturn or turn upside down, or it's even translated transform. So what did Jonah really preach? Forty days in the city of Nineveh will be turned upside down. It will be transformed. And Jonah thought that was going to come through judgment. That's why in the next chapter, he goes up onto the hilltop in chapter four to watch the fireworks. Fireworks. He goes up on the fire, God, I can't wait to see what you do with these evil people. But in reality, the city was turned upside down by God's disruptive grace. They repented and the whole city changed. The whole city was transformed. Verse 5 tells us they believed God. They heeded his warning. They, They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. That was an external sign of inward sorrow for their sin. And everybody did it, it says, from the greatest down to the least. The whole city turned away from their sin, turned to the Lord. Verse one of chapter four tells us, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He was angry at mercy that was offered to sinners. Are we more like God who longs for mercy to be offered? Or are we more like Jonah? God, I can't wait to see these people get what's coming to them. Which posture do we more often inhabit? Palmer Robertson, Old Testament scholar, wrote this. God forgets and never holds the thing against you. Think of how wonderful are the implications for that one fact for your life. God simply does not hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. God doesn't hold judges. Grudges, he he warns us, He, he, he tells us about the consequences of our sin, but when we turn from it and turn to him, he doesn't hold grudges. And friends, that is a lifestyle of repentance not just doing it one time, but throughout our whole lives turning again and again away from our sin to the Lord, that lifestyle of repentance is what provides the gas. That's what provides the fuel in the heart to live in service of the Lord. Knowing that he always calls me deeper and deeper into a life of repentance. And those who are recipients of that grace in the face of the Lord don't begrudge his sharing it with other sinners. God warns us. It was gracious warning of the Lord to tell Nineveh about the consequences of their sin. They turned from it. They repented. So, what does that repentance look like here? Well, for Jonah, for you and for me, the first step in repentance is recognizing to see ourselves as we really are, as we truly are. Verse 5, it says, Nineveh believed God. They believed what God said about them. They saw themselves from his perspective of holiness and and they honestly confessed they aren't holy. The king said as much in verse eight, calling them to turn away from their evil ways, their violent ways, he said. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't pretend that they were better than they really are. He called it evil because their eyes had been opened to the truth of their lives. They saw it for what it was before the Lord. They also saw how it completely characterized their lives king noted their society, their worldview, their their success, their economy. It was all built on sin in their lives. That's what's behind verse 7. It's not just the people he calls to exhibit repentance. He says, verse 7, beasts and herds and flocks and everything in sackcloth, all these people and all these animals alike clothed as a sign of recognition of how pervasive their sin was. It completely dominated their lives and how they interacted with one another these Ninevites recognized the truth about themselves as God saw them. Sometimes, rather than repent like that and recognize the truth, we retreat and we make excuses. We retreat and hide and hope nobody, nobody catches me. Nobody saw what I just did. And we make excuses about it when we're shown something. We say, well, they did this so I'm not responsible, or I wouldn't have acted that way if you didn't, or if, if you hadn't done so-and-so, well, I can't be blamed here. It's just, do you hear the retreating and the excuse-making? It's not repentance. It's not repentance to hide the truth. It's not repentance to make excuses. That step that so often follows retreating is fixing. I'll do better. I'll stop it. I, I can handle it, but here's the thing. You can't. Neither can I. We can't fix ourselves. We can't break the power of sin in our lives. And whenever we figure out that we can't fix it, sometimes we retreat even more. We hide even more. We pretend even more. Nobody sees it. That's not repentance. Retreating and fixing isn't repentance. As Augustine famously said, God gives where he finds empty hands. God gives where he finds empty hands. When we repent, we come to God empty-handed, not with excuses, not with strategies to make it all better, but rather saying, Lord, I'm sinful, I'm broken, I violated your law, and would you do something in me and for me? We come empty-handed as we mourn and as we lament our sin. And all of us are the same. At verse 6, the king removed his robe He took off that symbol that set him apart from everybody else. He was just as much a sinner as everybody in his whole kingdom. And together they expressed sorrow for their sin. They put on sackcloth and ashes and they fasted. None of us are beyond repentance. None of us are so special that we have no need to repent. (laughs) Now we don't express our sorrow for our sin in the same way today as they did in the ancient Near East. But we do grieve over our sin, don't we? We lament our sin and it's in confession. It's confessing our sin, taking God's posture about our sin that robs secret sin of its power in our lives. That confession may look like telling the truth about yourself to someone you have a solid relationship, an intimate relationship with, someone you feel like you can be completely honest about your need. There may be somebody in your small group, somebody in your family, somebody in your life before whom you can share the grip that sin has had on your life and say, I can't escape it. I can't fix this myself. I need help. You know, it's not wise or comfortable or appropriate to tell everybody about all of your sin that's foolish but if all your sin is hidden from everybody you never admit that you have a great need for jesus then could it be that you're trying to hide could it be that you've retreated and you're trying to use that technique of fixing i i'm not that bad i can just tweak my life a little bit and it'll be fine If we never confess our sin, we don't tell the truth about ourselves, could it be that we're trying to hide our own sin from our eyes? Could it be that we're trying to hide from God? Where are you being forced to recognize deep sin in your life? It's confession that breaks the power of that secret sin. Now, that's not to heap guilt on anybody. But rather, as Martin Luther once said, "It's getting to repentance is getting used to the fact that we are great sinners, but we have a great Savior in Christ Jesus." Recognizing is that first step of repenting. We recognize our sorrow, our, our sinful condition, but we also need to recognize the love of God to whom we turn for forgiveness and healing. It's the second step of repentance: turning. As says we turn away from God, look at verse 8, they're turned away from all their evil way. That turning in repentance is not just feeling bad about all that we've done, but rather turning away from the desire to commit it, desire to do it, no longer being enslaved to those practices anymore. We turn away from our sin. It also means that we turn away from our retreating and our fixing. It means to cry out and saying, Jesus, I can't stop this. I can't fix myself. I need your help from outside. In a sense, that turning in repentance is giving up. But to give up on my strategies, give up on my strength, give up on making myself better, give up on thinking, you know what, I'm just going to manage my reputation here. If I can manage that I appear good, that's good enough. Friends, that's not Repentance. Managing looking good is not repentance. Managing our, managing our goodness expects that God graves on a curve. <laughs> I'm better than the next person, but God doesn't grave on a curve. God, God looks at us and sees our, our disobedience, our rebellion, and is liable to judgment when we try to fix it by I'm gonna stop doing the bad stuff and I'm gonna manage doing more good things, that's not the gospel. That's moralism. There is no power to break the power of sin through just resolving that I'm gonna do better. It will never work. To whom do we turn then? We turn away from our sin and we turn to someone. To whom? We turn to Jesus. Jesus is the one who strengthens us, who assures us of forgiveness, and shows us the path of walking in life. Look at verse 9. Who knows, the king said, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Turning, Repentance is turning away from our sin, turning to the Lord who is merciful. Do you note that the king's repentance didn't demand anything from God? But he just said, Lord, this is who I am. I cast myself on your mercy. Who knows this God may relent because this God is so different from the gods of our culture, the gods of of Nineveh, the gods of the cancel culture. This God is merciful. Merciful. This is the God who can heal. This is the God who can forgive. This is the God who can restore. This is the God who is loving. This is the God who can make you different, who can change you so that you long to follow his ways. We turn to Jesus and we find him merciful. We have a better view than this king of Nineveh and Jonah and in fact the Old Old Testament. We have more light on this side of the cross to know the character of the one to whom we turn. That God took on flesh and entered our world. He entered into your life and he lived a perfectly righteous life that you and I can never live. He fulfilled every calling, every demand, every law of God and that record of God's perfection of doing it all right, Jesus says, it's for you. Will you receive it by faith? He took another step that Jesus says, even even in another step from living a perfect life for you, I'm going to the cross so that I receive the judgment that you deserve. I take on myself the judgment that you, a sinful human being, deserves for violating the law of God. All of it exhausted in Christ on the cross for you. He's given you his righteousness And he takes on himself your judgment. And he was raised from the dead in victory over it all. We know that our God is merciful because he's shown us. He's demonstrated what his character is like. He loves to save sinners like you and me. The Bible even says that he sings. He delights to sing blessing and grace over his people. Have you ever had anybody sing over you before? Sometimes it's embarrassing, isn't it? Sometimes it feels like I'm on the spot, I'm not comfortable with this attention. But the Bible says the God of heaven and earth sings over you with loud singing of joy and grace. He loves to be merciful to people like us. And it's that merciful character of God the one who smiles over us that will empower that lifestyle of turning away from our sin and turning to Jesus. It's that smile of God that will, that will strengthen and empower our following after the Lord all the days of our lives. We won't turn to him if we don't believe that he's merciful. But he is. And he's given himself for us. We turn away from our sin and to Jesus to find his power at work. Let me close with this. In Rockefeller Center in New York City, there are two famous landmarks. One of them is St. Patrick's Cathedral and the other is that statue of Atlas in Rockefeller Center. Have you seen those? Have you seen pictures of them at least? If you're in Rockefeller Center and you look at St. Patrick's Cathedral, there are these two 20,000 pound bronze doors that, that shut over the front of the cathedral. And yet when those doors are opened, you can see down the center aisle. You look down the center aisle of that church, and what do you find at the back? You find a cross. You stand in that that center of of life, that center of of economy, that center of everything in New York, and you can look down the center aisle of this church and see a cross. If you turn around, 180 degrees, what do you see? You see Atlas. Atlas. You see this statue of this, this man who perceives himself to be God, who has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he's straining, he's hunched over that weight, all the way to the world, this self-made man, and only his stature to hold him up. Which way are you facing? Are you looking at the cross? where the weight of the world was born? Are you looking at the cross on which Jesus died that all of your judgment would be removed and you would be made new by his power? Or are you facing the weight of the world on your own shoulders? Having to make myself better? Having any manage in my way? I have to retreat and fix, but it doesn't ever work. Which way are you facing? Standing in the, in the center plaza. Are you looking to Jesus? where you look into yourself. The Christian life is looking unto Jesus every step of the way. Because only Jesus can hold you up. Only Jesus can hold you safe. Only Jesus can bring you home safely to a new heavens and a new earth where there will be fullness of joy. Which way are you facing today? Let's pray. Father, what a picture that we have in the happenstance of these these two monuments in Rockefeller Center Plaza. Lord, we know what it feels like to have the weight of the world on our shoulders. We know what it feels like to have to bear up ourselves and feel like we're being crushed. And so Jesus is following you. We wanna turn to Christ. We wanna turn to you, Jesus. We want to turn to the one who bore our judgment in our place the one who loves us, the one who offers us mercy, and the one who has the power to make us different. So Lord, fill this church with that lifestyle of repentance that we day after day turn away from our sin and turn to you, the Lord who is gracious and merciful, extending your grace to a thousand generations. You, the God who is slow to anger, and abounding in love. We turn to you, Lord, and we find life. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.